Good morning. Um, we're continuing our uh, theme on uh, prayer today, uh, particularly looking at the Old Testament and exploring the Old Testament together to see what we can learn about uh, prayer. Um, my investigation of prayer in the Old Testament uh, taught me a few uh, key lessons. And I just want to highlight what those are before we uh, go, in, go into them today. So the first one, the first thing that I learned in investigating prayer in the Old Testament is that prayer is more than pleading or petition. It's our whole relation to God. Right? It's how we relate to God in a much bigger way than just pleading or petition. That was one of the first lessons that I learned. The next one was that in the context of prayer, the Old Testament stories, they show rather than tell what it's like to encounter the living God in the midst of our ordinary lives. And that's really important. All right. And it's not enough, as we, as we all experience, to only think about God. The Old Testament reveals that God invites us to think with Him. God invites us to collaborate. And by collaborating, God forms us. These were the three things that really stood out to me as I was investigating this topic of, of prayer in the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament has the quality of being able to walk alongside uh, characters and people um, within the stories that we read about. Um, and I want to highlight just a few of those Characters, a few of those stories and their encounters with God uh, to see uh, what, what we can learn about prayer by, by exploring them together. All right, so as, as, we're, as we talk about prayer, we're challenged to do a lot more than just to think about God. You don't need to be a Christian to think deeply about God, um, to understand some of the biblical stories and what they're trying to teach us. As a discussion about prayer brings into question whether or not we have allowed God uh, to shape us through our prayer. That's really what we should be asking is, have we allowed God to shape us in some way through our prayer? Have we faced God and allowed Him to personally transform us? What does it mean to collaborate with God? Is that something that we see in the Old Testament scriptures? A sort of collaboration between, between man and God? And is this idea something that you've ever considered before? I want to go to Genesis, first of all, because we have this example uh, in, in the Garden of Eden of Adam and God collaborating over God's creation. So starting in chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. 
And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And it's just this incredible image of of God forming these creatures out of the earth and bringing them to man. And there's this amazing sense of anticipation from God about what's man going to call this next piece of my creation? And we see this, this amazing working together between God, the Creator, and, and Adam. And this, is, this gives us an insight into God's, God's desired relationship with humanity. Now, I want you to keep this relationship in mind, this collaborative relationship in mind, as we look at some more Old Testament examples. Um, because soon we're introduced to, to a problem, right? And that problem is the problem of sin and the pain that it causes both God and man by separating them. Right? Man is thrown out of the Garden of Eden. He doesn't have that same uh, connection, that same ability to walk alongside God as he did inside the Garden. And God starts this process of redeeming humanity back to him, overcoming this, this sin problem. And the Old Testament tells these remarkable stories about people who God converses with and raises up as leaders to fulfill his redemptive purposes. God chooses, and this is, this is really interesting, because God chooses to bring about his redemptive purposes by inviting humanity to work alongside him. But because of this sin problem, the relationship, it's much more complicated. It's much more complicated than the image that we have in the garden between Adam and God. Man does not know God like he did in the garden. And often we see in the Old Testament examples of where God and man have to contend with each other. Man contends with God. And yet for some reason... Somehow, God allows that contention. Take some of these examples. Abraham, who challenges God in his judgment of Sodom. After God reveals his plan to Abraham that he's going to judge Sodom for its evil, Abraham Abraham stands up and he challenges God. He knows that God is fair and that he's good. Yet it doesn't seem fair to Abraham that God should punish everybody equally. He asks the question, well, if there's only 50 righteous in the city of Sodom, are you going to judge them like you are the unrighteous um, equally? Are you going to punish them as well? And God, there's this amazing uh, conversation where God hears Abraham out. He hears what he has to say. And he, he showed Abraham based on Abraham identifying an aspect of God's character. We have another great example. So Moses seeks God's favour and God relents. So God speaks to Moses atop Mount Sinai and shortly after establishing a covenant with Yahweh, 
that he would be their God and they would be their people, talking about the, the Hebrews, the Israelite people. And after God had delivered them out of captivity in Egypt, they quickly lose faith in God. And God's anger rages, we're told, against the Hebrew people. God threatens to wipe them out and he says he's going to start again uh, through Moses. But Moses challenges God's threat. Moses asks God to remember the promises he made to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, that he would give them the promised land and make their descendants like the stars in the heavens and give them a great inheritance. And in response to Moses' challenge, the Lord, as we're told, he relents. He says he's not going to bring that judgment upon uh, the Hebrew people, upon the Israelites. Another example. Jonah challenges the Lord's compassion. Right? So here we've got a, a, an illustration of Moses challenging the Lord's judgment. And now we've got Jonah who's actually challenging God based on his compassion. This scripture shows us another instance where the Lord relents in his judgment. But this time it's for the city of Nineveh due to their repentance. All right, so the city of Nineveh, with all of its evil, hears God's message and they repent. And God responds by, by withholding his hand, by not bringing uh, the judgment upon them that he threatens. And then we have this amazing exchange in chapter 4 between Jonah and God, where Jonah gets angry at God for his compassion. And he challenges God. He says, you know what, God, I knew that you would do this. I knew that you were compassionate and full of love and this is why I didn't want to come here and bring your message to the, to the Ninevites because I knew that you would be compassionate towards them. And God is so patient towards Jonah and he uses the opportunity, this, this moment of contention um, to teach Jonah about his compassion, his love for humanity. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, God asks Jonah. Should I not have concern? Again, we have this, this amazing illustration of a moment of contention between God and man. I have another example and it's not on the slides. But it comes from Job. And after Job and God contend with one another, after Job challenges God and says he wants to take him to court because God's not been treating him fairly, Job says he doesn't deserve the punishment that he's receiving. And he accuses, he accuses God well, at the end of the story, God encounters Job. And Job, Job's perspective changes as a result. He realizes there's so much that he doesn't know. And, and Job's response is, 
is to be humbled. Humbled before God. He repents before God for challenging him in the first place. But here's what's really interesting. God's anger burns. But it doesn't burn against Job. It burns against Job's friends. And God's anger is directed at them because they did not tell the truth about God like Job had. This scripture gives us the impression that, that God is happy for us to challenge Him. As long as we're highlighting the truth of His character, the truth of His promises, and the truth of who He is, God seems to like us to challenge Him. He invites us to challenge Him. In each of these examples, and I know I've gone through them really quickly, but I hope there's at least one story here that you're familiar enough with to understand um, where I'm coming from. And this idea of, of, of God's people contending with God, of arguing with God. In each of these examples... God's people contend with God and highlight an aspect of his character or one of the promises uh, that he's made. And these examples are are to highlight how God works with or collaborates with his people in the Old Testament to make decisions. God's desire to communicate with his people in these instances is an invitation for others to offer input into the decision-making process. God seems to invite challenges and he honours wisdom from people when it reflects his character and it reflects his promises. Now, there's a lot of, a lot of arguments that people go into um, about some of these subjects. But I think it's appropriate that we wrestle with some of these concepts when it comes to the question of what does the Old Testament tell us about prayer? Because as I mentioned, the Old Testament doesn't directly tell us what to think about prayer, but it gives us examples. It shows us examples of people who, who wrestle with God, who communicate with God. And it, it asks us to, to, to take away certain lessons, to walk alongside um, people who have extraordinary prayer lives. The Old Testament shows us that prayer demands much more than sort of like a, 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 a passive, lean-on-me type religiousness that it's so easy for us to get caught up in. God's people, God's people in the Old Testament, yes, they listen to God. They petition God. They ask God for things. But they also criticize God. And that should challenge how we think about prayer. And the amazing thing as well is that in some of these instances, God seems to be okay with it. God's happy to work with it. He's happy to work with people who try to challenge him. There's an Australian biblical scholar 
his name is David Kleins, and he writes this. For many Christians, God is essentially loving, supportive, safe. Yet if Yahweh is God, and the Old Testament makes sure that such a simple picture of the personality of God is called Sorry, let me read that again. Yet if Yahweh is God, the Old Testament makes sure that such a simple picture of the personality of God is called into In the Old Testament, neither the loving nor the abrasive aspect of Yahweh's personality is so underplayed that the one is swallowed up in the other. It is the experience of Israel that Yahweh is multifaceted in his personality. He's complex and not entirely predictable. The more it is insisted that God is ever-loving, ever-patient, ever-positive in, in His relationships with men, the more religion becomes a cradle or a cocoon. The less true it is to the reality of our human experience. So that begs the question... In what way is prayer consistent with our human experience? In trying to summarize a way of, of, of addressing that issue of prayer in the context of the human experience, I rediscovered this Old Testament story. The story of Jacob uh, wrestling with God, and we read about it in Genesis 32. This is a mysterious narrative, and we should take it very seriously. But at the same time, we can't take it too literalistically, because this story... It, it, it does a couple of important things, and one of them is that it, it interprets the meaning of Israel. Israel is characteristic of someone who wrestles with God. Israel means, the name Israel means, one who wrestles with God or contends with God. And that should be an incredibly hopeful idea for us. Because isn't that consistent with our experience of prayer? Isn't that consistent with the experience of these Old Testament people who wrestled, who contended with God, who struggled against God in all things? Has your relationship with God been nothing but smooth sailing? Well, mine certainly hasn't. There have been times where it really does feel that you're wrestling with God, like God's got you in a headlock. It can feel physical, it can feel rough, and it can feel violent. I'm going to read uh, this, this particular passage uh, from Genesis in, in, in 30, uh, chapter 32. All right. 
Jacob wrestles with God. Starting in verse verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched um, as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob answered him. Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed them, but then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Then the sun rose above him, and he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob changes as a result of this encounter with God. The first thing that we notice is that, well, he inherits a new name, Israel, which which means one that has wrestled with God. The Israelites, Israel, they are people who step into the arena with God and they contend with Him. And that's a frightening prospect for us in many ways because nobody wrestles with God. Nobody contends with God and comes out the other end the same person. Jacob, in fact, he's surprised that he's even been able to contend with God and survive. He's surprised that he was able to face God and come out the other end alive. The narrative is affirming that if one is to receive God's blessing, in this case it was uh, to inherit leadership like that of Jacob, then one must be assertive, even with God. The narrative does not say that Jacob defeated the divine figure. This isn't a story to tell us that we need to somehow beat God. In fact, as we know, it's Jacob that leaves the scene limping. And additionally, Jacob's opponent, he retains retains his divine dignity. He retains his mystery. He does not reveal his name to Jacob. And similarly, God does not reveal, if we look at the story of Job, God does not reveal his plan to Job. There's a level of dignity, a level of 
mystery that God maintains in all of this. God is still in control. But he does acknowledge Jacob's, kind of like Jacob's wrestling ability. His ability to hold on in the struggle. His ability not to let go, but to to persevere through the night. And he bestows on him a blessing. And there's a blessing that waits for God's people who contend long enough to receive it. There's a blessing. You know, there's a lot of ways that this story is interpreted and people challenge uh, the idea of who, who is this man, this mysterious man that Jacob encounters. And there's all sorts of different ideas and, and translations. Um, traditionally, a, a lot of us have been probably told that, well, this man, this mysterious man is an angel. And certainly that idea is what uh, resulted in, in, in a piece of artwork like this, where Jacob is wrestling against this, this divine angel. But if we look at the story, I think it's much more consistent. And this is just based on my own research in this story. It's more consistent to believe that this man was a representation of of God in some way. Because Jacob says, he says, "I, I faced God in all of this. This experience, I wrestled with God. And as I reflect on my own life, it's the times where I've really struggled with God that have shaped me most as a Christian. And if we refuse to contend with God, it's because, well, we're cowards in a way. It's easy to come up with reasons not to face God. Some, some of us might choose not to believe in God. That's a really easy way not to contend with God. Just assume he doesn't even exist in the first place. Others of us might just simply not be bothered. We can't be bothered to face up against God. Some of us just don't want to be changed. We see God's power and the amazing things that He does in people's lives and how they can transform and how they can uh, rid the sin in people's lives and, 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 and amazing things happen, but we just don't want that. We just don't want to be challenged. We don't want to grow. We don't want to change. We just want to be comfortable. That's another reason that we don't contend with God. Some of us just don't want our hip thrown out of joint. Maybe it's going to hurt a little bit. Maybe it's a bit uncomfortable. Maybe I'm going to be left with a scar that's going to follow me for the rest of my life. At different times in my life, I think I've thought in all of those different ways. But in the moments where we've faced God, we've stepped into the arena, it's become personal, it's become messy. And, we've, and I've not looked away from God. Those are the moments where He's been able to shape me, to grow me. Those are the moments where I've seen real transformation in my life. Here's a story from the Old Testament 
about a woman who wrestled with God in her prayers. If you like, turn with me to to 1 Samuel in the first chapter. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read this story as well. <clears throat> All right. There was a certain man from Ramathin, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zaph. An Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Panana. Panana had children, and Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day Whenever, uh, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year, Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on her chair by the door sitting on his chair by the doorpost in the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will, only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the Lord God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She saw favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Now, at this point in the story, there's something amazing for us to learn about Hannah. She's... she's She's grieving because she cannot have children. And her husband is saying all these nice things to try and make her feel better and none of it's doing the job. 
And so she goes to God in prayer and she pours out her heart to God. And then after she's poured out her heart, she goes away. And what does she do? She eats. And she's no longer downcast. She's no longer depressed. And that should tell us something amazing about about prayer. Because Hannah, at that point, hadn't even had her prayer answered by God. And yet, there's a sort of relief that she experiences just by contending with God, by pouring out her heart, by questioning God and asking, why is this happening to me? By contending with God, she finds relief. And of course, as we learn in the story, uh, God does grant her a son. And that son is Samuel. Wrestling with God brings fulfillment and hope regardless of the outcome. And we see that in the example of Hannah's prayer. Just to finish up, I want to touch briefly on on Psalms because I can't talk about prayer in the Old Testament without touching on Psalms. N.T. Wright uh, says, he he refers to the Psalms as being Jesus' book of prayers. And he means that quite literally because those those were the texts that Jesus went to Uh, to learn how to pray. And quite often, they were Jesus' prayers. Jesus used the Psalms uh, to pray to God. We have a great example um, in Mark 15, where Jesus wrestles with the Father in his prayer, in, in his darkest moment on the cross. And he cries out. He cries out to God uh, using one of the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, that's a reference to Psalm 22. And if Jesus goes to the Psalms in his prayers, in his darkest hour, how much more should we be using the Psalms in our day-to-day lives as an expression of our own prayers to God? The Psalms have an incredible quality of putting to words um, many of our feelings. And they teach us how to talk to God. Old Testament prayer shows rather than tells what it looks like to encounter the living God. It allows us to walk alongside God's people, to see, uh, to, to witness their relationship with Him. Old Testament prayer shows God's desire to collaborate with us in His work. Old Testament prayer shows us that God's people must wrestle with Him and wrestling with God is essential to our own spiritual formation. If we want to grow, we have to do this. We have to wrestle with God. Today's Anzac Day. Um, And I want to mention this because I, I was reading an incredible story about an Australian soldier who's a chaplain um, on the Kokoda Trail. And he gave hope to his men, the men that he, he worked alongside in the middle of 
battle in the middle of uh, bullets flying overhead and, and death all around because he provided a place where people could wrestle with God in the heat of battle. He, pro- he provided reprieve by praying for these men who were going through some of the darkest hours of their lives. Each one of us need to learn how to wrestle with God. That in our struggles, in everything that we do uh, day by day, we can face up to God and, and speak to Him. Yes, praise Him, but also uh, challenge Him and wrestle Him. Re- uh, be aware of His character. Be aware of His promises um, in our prayer. Because if we do that, God has a special blessing um, for each one of us.